At the northeast corner of Cooker Arboretum is the most wonderful bush I know. Not that it's particularly exotic, not that it's gorgeous to look at, though its little yellow blossoms are pleasing enough. Not that you'd even notice it driving by on Raleigh Street, past the President's house diagonally across the road. But if you're walking anywhere nearby in late February, you can't miss it because Lonicera fragrantissima emits, as its species name rightly claims, the most fragrant of aromas, marvelously fresh and sweet and evocative, neither too cloying nor too subtle. Precisely what's needed to put dull winter behind us and welcome the olfactory revival of another southern spring. Poet Michael McPhee pays attention as he walks around the campus at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He often strolls through the Arboretum. It's a five-acre garden, chock full of wildflowers, trees, and shrubs from around the world. Michael observes. He jots down notes. He remembers his decades of visiting this beautiful refuge. In late winter, though, he is in search of something very specific. He awaits the blooming of the aptly named Lonicera fragrantissima, commonly known as the first breath of spring. It's a bit before actual spring. It's usually almost a month before March 21st or so. You'll see the bush start to bud. I mean, I walk by that bush on my way to my office. Every day I go in to teach, and I wait for those buds to appear, because I know in a few days here comes that amazing, sweet smell, which has come to mean spring. Welcome to the third season of 27 Views, the podcast where we talk to some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in and write about this corner of the country. From the north banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today we visit with poet and essayist Michael McPhee. Michael is a professor in the Creative Writing Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is a noted poet and essayist who has published numerous books, most recently a volume of poetry called A Long Time to Be Gone. He also contributed an essay entitled Fragrantissima to the anthology 27 Views of Chapel Hill, a Southern University Town in prose and poetry. Michael joined us in Fairweather Studios to read from his story and to talk about his decades of strolling through the Arboretum as a student, a graduate student, and then years later as a professor. Tell us about Coker Arboretum on the UNC campus. It's a sanctuary amid all the campus buildings. It's sort of like the central park of UNC. It's been there for over a century, and it is a green escape from whatever might be troubling you in the academic world. My wife and I courted there. We played with our son in that space. 
I was walking through there yesterday just because I hadn't been through there in a while. And it always makes me feel calmer and better. And it's filled with all kinds of native species. Yeah, it was started as an arboretum that was meant to be a sampler of trees and plants from throughout the South and then throughout the world. Then it sort of filled up with those plants. There are still some very unusual trees and plants there, and they bloom at different times of the year. So even in the middle of winter, there's usually something going on. You know, something has died in a spectacular way, but it's an always interesting place to visit. And a year-round garden. Absolutely. But as spring approaches, it's the fragrantissima that hearkens. Something exciting coming. Yes. Its common name, First Breath of Spring, is almost as lovely and accurate as its botanical one, because it does indeed breathe life into a new year, animating its cold clay. To me, that bush embodies Chapel Hill, where things seem to bloom sooner and longer than anywhere else. I don't know why that is. Could it be the elevation, lifting the town above the surrounding plain like some mythical mountain? Could it be a matter of air, an atmospheric current quickening the village and its campus with what Charles Courant called a kind of generosity, a certain tolerance, a disposition toward freedom and inquiry? Or could it be, as the rest of the Tar Heel State might say, all that intellectual manure generated by professors and students and alumni through the centuries? Let me add a brief editor's note here. The late Charles Kuralt, a celebrated UNC alum, was one of America's most popular journalists of the last half of the 20th century. The one-time editor of the Daily Tar Heel, Kuralt spent more than 25 years hosting CBS's award-winning On the Road. It featured Kuralt's reporting on the people and sites of America's back roads. Now back to my conversation with Michael. How long have you been at UNC? I've been at UNC almost half a century. I transferred there in 1974 from NC State, where I was studying architecture, and I realized I would not be a very good architect. And I'd always been interested in words, and I heard Chapel Hill was a literary place. So uh, I came there as an undergraduate in 1974. I did a master's degree there and have always been around there. Taught there for a little while in the 80s, then taught elsewhere at Cornell and Lawrence, but came back in 1990. That was about 35 years ago. So I've been on the faculty that long. You said you started out in the architecture program at NC State and decided that wasn't for you. How did you evolve as a poet? I've had people who don't know me very well, or maybe even don't know those disciplines very well, say, those are such different disciplines. To me, they're really not. They're both about making things and about building structures that are pleasing to the eye and useful in some way. So I feel like architecture really trained me to pay attention and to look. Much of the first two years of design school at NC State when I was there were studios. They were art studios. So they were drawing. Well, I took a whole semester of drawing. And the professor in that class, he told us the sketchbook to get and the pencils and pens. And he said, I want you to go out and draw for 20 hours a week. And I was floored. 
one of my classmates said, 20 hours. And he just turned on this guy and said, if you can't find 20 hours worth of stuff to draw in a week, you're not paying close enough attention to the world. And I think that discipline helped me to pay attention. And one of the simplest definitions of poetry, D.H. Lawrence said a poem is an act of attention. I think any writing is an act of attention. You're noticing stuff that might otherwise go unnoticed and unpreserved in words. So that was great training for me. In terms of evolving, you can't force that or can't predict it, but I feel like at regular intervals throughout my now long writing life, I've found a new subject or a new form or a new angle on something. Like in my most recent poetry book, it's called A Long Time to Be Gone. The title is from the old folk song, Little Birdie. Little birdie, little birdie, won't you sing to me your song? Got a short time to stay here and a long time to be gone. There's a section in there of poems set during the early days of COVID. I did not mean to write those poems. I was not looking to write poems about COVID. In fact, I was trying to avoid it because I figured everybody's writing a COVID poem. But it became a way, Elizabeth, to deal with that strange, scary, unprecedented time. And not just in my life, but in everybody's life. It was such a peculiar stretch of months. And I think we writers will often deal with challenges in words. It's a way we have of making sense of it. So that was part of an evolution, but it's certainly a direction I had not been in before. And that focus on detail is what would lead you to the Arboretum and to be able to name Fragrantissima and be able to recognize that smell. Yes, absolutely. And one of the great things about the Arboretum is almost all the plants are labeled. When I was walking there yesterday, I saw this bush and I thought, what is that bush? Is it some kind of chestnut? I finally found the label. It was a big bush, and it was part of the horse chestnut family, but that wasn't the name of it. But I wrote it down in the pad in my pocket because I think the urge to name and to be precise about naming is certainly at the heart of any kind of writing. It's certainly something I'm always trying to encourage my students. Please don't be vague. <laughs> be as exact as you can. I think sometimes they think that poetry is sort of vague and poetic and whatever, but I, I disagree. What do you tell your students? Pay attention. Don't be abstract. Listen for sounds around you. Try to find the music and words and really work toward imagery. I just think imagery is the key to a poem. And the odd thing about that, or the, I guess the exasperating thing about it is, there's no trick for learning how to use images or to find images. They occur. But you have to prepare yourself to be ready to receive them and how to find them in things you're looking at because a good image can reveal the secret or the essence of what you're writing about in a way that a thousand words can't. When young Michael McPhee discovered his passion for literature, he immediately knew he wanted to be a writer. But it took years to establish himself to get published, to secure a teaching position. In the meantime, he supported himself and his family with a variety of jobs, from house painter to gardener to publications editor at a university. I was curious to know if those jobs had helped him as a writer. To me, writing was and is a calling, but it's also a job. And it's not going to get written if you don't go to your desk. And 
especially during the summer, I try to go to my desk every morning after breakfast and work until lunch. Doesn't always happen. It's fine. I also try not to beat myself up if it doesn't happen. That's it's life. That's the way things go. But I feel a responsibility to this calling, to the commitment I've made to writing poems and essays and books. It's a glacial pace, the writer's life, but I think you've got to, you got to stay on that glacier, man, because it's not going to write itself. And, um, but it's also true. I was talking with Alan Shapiro about this once, about writing. And um, he's a fellow poet. Fellow poet. And we agreed that when you're in the writing moment, when you're at the desk and it's happening, the bliss of it is you lose all track of time. You don't even realize in a way where you are, what you're doing. You'll sit down and you'll get on the track of something and get hot on these words at 9.15 and you look up and it's 12.30. No idea where the time went. It must be a great feeling. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an ecstatic feeling. Uh, it's almost a religious feeling. A prayerful feeling. You just, in a way, you go. It's that's the great paradox about writing. Is of course, it's so intensely about you, but it's also not about you at all. It's about making this word world that exists without you on the page. Because when a reader reads it in one of your books or in one of my books, I'm not there to explain it. I can't say no. Don't. don't isn't this nice? Look at this term. I mean, this is what I meant here. Mm-mm. It's it's got to be on the page. And I think. To have the discipline to keep trying to give this word, world you make, as full a bodied existence as you can, that's the joy of it for me. And how exactly can you identify Lonicera fragrantissima? It's also known as winter honeysuckle. The plant can grow to a height of 10 feet in a tangle of branches. At the first hint of warming weather during the winter months, small, creamy white flowers cover the branches. Their scent is lemony. However, this exuberant plant, like some non-native species, is considered invasive. Taming its exuberance can be a challenge. I've had a few friends who say, that's a great bush. I remember talking with uh, Jeffrey Beam about it. Jeffrey told me something I didn't know, which is that these bushes used to be also planted in front of South Building, so the main administrative building. But they're sort of like a gorgeous weed. They really will spread, and they were getting a bit too wild <laughs> for that quad. So uh, now the only, as to my knowledge, the only stand of them on campus is in the Arboretum. Can you describe what the smell of the first breath of spring evokes in you? A lot of feelings. One must be nostalgia for having been in that place for so long, but reminding me of when I was a young man and walking by that space long before I was married, long before I had published anything. And so it reminds me of the young me. It reminds me again of being in the Arboretum with my family and having that smell in the air when we were playing or walking or laughing. Um, but it's mostly now for me an anticipatory smell because it says the year is really turning. The weather is about to improve. We're on the verge of entering the most gorgeous time of year in this area because spring is glorious. It's a little pollen-y, but so what? It's fine. It's part of the deal. Um, so it's, it's mostly just such a deeply happy feeling. These have been tumultuous times at UNC. It's been buffeted by both budget cuts and political muscling from the state legislature. 
Michael originally wrote the essay before all that began. At that time, he described Chapel Hill as terra frequentissima. Considering those developments, I was curious to know if he thought his poetic classification still applied. I'm happy to say that I would. I know that the university has faced many challenges, especially in recent years. What hasn't changed, though, in my experience, is what goes on in the classroom with the students that come there. The students I get are still just delightful. They come from all over the state. I'm never happier than when I get a student who comes from a little town I've never heard of, and that's really something in North Carolina, because I thought I knew every place. And coming to Chapel Hill is like going to Manhattan for them. It's just like, it opens them up, which is what really the meaning of the word education is to draw out, to open up. And it just opens them up. So it still feels that way to me as a teacher and also as a person. I think it might help not to live in Chapel Hill. I've lived in Durham since the late 1970s. But to go there every time is, I won't say I discover something new every time, but it reminds me of so many positive things that have come to me in my life, at least in part because I was in that place. All I know is the town's dogwoods and azaleas and other local flora are always weeks ahead of anything flowering in my yard in Durham, only seven miles away. And that's one reason I feel so lucky coming here to teach or attend a show or go to a restaurant or baseball game. It's a place of early blooming where flora and fauna can just go ahead and burst into blossom without worrying about the pressures that might hold them back elsewhere. No doubt this has its ludicrous aspects, but like the Arboretum itself, a botanical sampler of the state and region and world, Chapel Hill is finally a kind of refuge, a place apart, not necessarily better, but definitely other. I first felt that distinctiveness in 1974 when I transferred to UNC and began to imagine myself as a writer. I still feel it nearly half a century later as a faculty member and poet walking through the Arboretum to my office. This place is, for me, terra fragrantissima. We have been visiting with poet and essayist Michael McPhee. He has been discussing his story, Fragrantissima, which was featured in 27 Views of Chapel Hill, published by Eno Publishers. Michael is the Doris Betts Professor of English in the Creative Writing Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has served as poet-in-residence at Cornell and at Lawrence Universities. A native of Asheville, Michael focuses much of his work on the North Carolina mountains, exploring both its culture and its environment. He has published 12 books of poetry, most recently, A Long Time to Be Gone, and We Were Once Here. He has also published several volumes of essays. Michael is a contributor to Eno's anthologies, The Carolina Table and 27 Views of Asheville. He is the recipient of many awards, including the North Carolina Award for Literature, the state's highest civilian honor. 
If you would like to hear Michael read his entire story, Fragrantissima, from 27 Views of Chapel Hill, you can find a link to the recording on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers, with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. There on the show notes page for episode 22, you will find a link to that recording, as well as more information about Michael and his work and about the 27 Views podcast. Twenty Seven Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision are by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Ezra Rawich and Elizabeth Benfi. Music for this episode is entitled "Holding On to Hope" by Megan Wofford. It's available on Epidemic Sound, and you can find a link to it on our website. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Quarry in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Luchron. Please join us next time for more stories and voices of the South on the 27 Views podcast. (laughs) 